is, is different, right? We were the first underrepresented minority-owned investment fund at Cornell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's over 200-year history. Yeah, we, talk, we talked to over, like, 80 students in our initial round. I wouldn't say it was taxing. It was actually, it was fun. Like, you have to, one, be deeply committed to it because this is your actual money that you're investing. You know, when you lose money, it's going to hurt. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. This is Ebenezer. What's good, guys? Uh, this is Mohammed. Today we have Sheikh Kamara. Sheikh is a junior in Dyson. He is co-president of Black Gen and co-founder at Fellow. Um, Sheikh, anything you want to add to that? Um, go ahead. Yeah, it's truly an honor to just be on this podcast. Um, you know, I'm really excited for the conversation that we're going to have. But a little bit of background about me. So my name is Sheikh Kamara. I'm a junior in the Dyson School studying finance. And, you know, I've always just been really inclined to business and, and entrepreneurship in general. And, you know, we can dive into that later. But, you know, that that kind of journey into entrepreneurship and, and finance is really what, what has shaped a lot of how I view, um, you know, my Cornell experience. It's beautiful to hear. Um, you know, all three of us are really good friends, known each other for a pretty good amount of time. And this conversation is going to get um, really deep. And, um, and I hope people are able to take some good gems from this because um, I know ourself will. Um, and so uh, let's, let's dive into your background a little, Shaq. Tell us about where you're from, how that's influenced you, and what you've taken from that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm from, so I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. But two months after I was born, my family decided to relocate to Harlem, New York which, you know, I spent the, uh, a predominant amount of, amount of my time just growing up there. Um, and, you know, I, I come from very humble beginnings, you know, son of two immigrant parents from Mali. They came to America with maybe $20 uh, in their pockets and just, you know, a large ambitious dream to, to fulfill that, that quote unquote American dream. And just to give, you know, us the opportunity to excel uh, in, in any field that, that we, we'd want. And so growing up, I kind of always had this uh, very humble perspective on just like life, but more broadly, I've also like in tandem with that, I've been super ambitious and that I've seen that, you know, America has so many opportunities. You know, I, I just want to make sure that I can capitalize on all of the opportunities presented and, and make the most out of it. And so Throughout school, um, like especially in high school, I really focused on getting good grades, making sure that I was setting myself up to get into a good school, um, post high school. Uh, eventually, you know, graduated, had a valedictorian of my high school, and then ultimately became the first uh, student in over 12 years from that high school to get into an IV. Wow. Um, and then, you know, ultimately got to Cornell, Funny story because I came into Cornell as a biology major. Um, you know, I, I was on the pre-med track. I wanted to be like a neurosurgeon. That whole, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I could definitely relate with that for sure. Um, I think we we might have talked about this in the past, but for me, when I when I in high school it was me watching Grace Anatomy, um, and I was like, yo, look at all this drama. Look at all this. Uh, 
saving people's lives. It just it seemed so glamorous. And so I could definitely share that. Um, but before we dive into Cornell, let's let's dive into into Harlem and, and um, what your experience was like um, in high school. I know you just mentioned that you were a valedictorian. Um, you know, um, so specifically on um, on on your high school um, and and some of the things that you kind of did there to to get to where you are today to kind of set the floor for the audience of your background and and who you were in high school and who you are now yeah definitely great question so i went to a public high school in the south bronx um you know the the high school didn't have many resources um was low very low funded you know school kind of like um you know a similar situation as many of the schools in the south bronx and and even in parts of Harlem. Um, however, I was really fortunate to just um, be presented the opportunity of SEO scholars. And so that program ultimately strived to close this, uh, this you know, education gap between minorities and, and affluent um, and, and, and white students. And so uh, we ultimately, like I, I was spending every weekend, like Saturdays from 8 a.m. to like 8 to 5 p.m. doing extracurricular, like, you know, academic assignments, like whether it be math, English, critical reading, critical writing. I also spent like a couple of my weekdays also doing more of that educational um, training. Is that part of the program? Yeah, so that's a big component of the program, just to make sure that they can feel, like they can close that academic gap, um, you know, with these students from under-resourced backgrounds. So I took full advantage of that. It really helped out uh, in terms of like SAT prep, um, doing well in my schoolwork in, in, in high school. And then also, you know, uh, it looked really good on college applications. Aside from SEO scholars, I also, um, you know, did decently well in my SATs. And so at the high school, I saw that there was no SAT prep resources, yeah. anything like that. And so I figured, you know, I could you know, potentially just put together a club where I can teach some students SAT math and, and kind of help them, um, you know, improve their scores. Um, and then on top of that, just like outside of academics, I'm, I'm big into just like being a hustler. Um, you know, I, was, I got really big into the whole like sneaker reselling and Supreme. And so I, I was literally a school day by uh, a school kid by day and, and hustling <laughs> my night. It was like flipping Supreme and sneakers and stuff. Um, you know, I it even got to the point where I like had a friend build me a bot. You know, that bot was really, really good. And the business kind of just took off. Um, and then I also just like, you know, throughout high school kind of, Looking back at it, I, I realized that I was always so focused on the future that I didn't quite, you know, enjoy the present and, and enjoy all of the elements of high school. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just always focusing on the next step, which was college um, and, and ultimately career, but not really, not fully enjoying the the friendships and the relationships that I built. And I. You know, that's one thing that I kind of look back and wish I 
have done differently, but you know, now now I know. Um, so that's one of the big things that I've been focusing on in, in college and we can talk about that more later on. Um, one thing that I like from uh, what you mentioned, um, you know, you, you seem to recognize the opportunity that you um, that you have, you know, by by being born in America, right? And a lot of people um, might recognize that, right? They might recognize that their parents immigrated for them to have an opportunity, but it's different recognizing it and actually taking that opportunity. And I don't know if you were very intentional about it as a high school student, you might know it, you might have known it subconsciously, but it seems like even with school, but also you said when you were hustling on the side as well, it's, and also thinking about the future, you seem to have like really understood the kind of opportunity that you were given and you, you seem like you wanted to take it. And I really like that about what you said. Yeah, like we're, we're really lucky. It's like, you know, like we're, we're really privileged in many ways. Yeah. There's a lot of people all across the world who are literally begging for the things that we have. Exactly. So, you know, if, if we have them, why not, you know, fully take advantage of it and make sure that we can multiply it and then ultimately give back. Exactly. I think this kind of reminds me of the convo that Mohammed and I were having a couple of days ago. You know, although in America there is a 1%, America itself is a 1% uh, compared to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So you know that kind of i don't know how we got there you know how that happened but kind of really reminds me of that and so it's it's cool that we're kind of covering that because that that's a motivation for me too and i believe it is for the rest of you guys um you know but it's really interesting because uh schoolboy by day hustler by night that hasn't changed uh it's still it's still the case um so let's transition a little bit and talk about um Cornell a little so you kind of mentioned it a little bit um when you got to Cornell but how was it um when you first um came to Cornell I know you did PSP um you know maybe talk about that some of your previous experiences yeah I mean so even getting into Cornell I don't I don't like I don't even think my parents knew it was kind of like a big deal a little bit like they kind of they were like oh that's a good college wow that's, that's great. <laughs> I don't think they really knew it was like Cornell and so I kind of say that just to say that you know coming in I didn't even fully know what Cornell was Definitely. like I had you know nobody in my family had gone to um you know an Ivy League institution mm-hmm. and and so I didn't fully know what to expect my high school was also predominantly minorities, black, uh, Latinx students. And so, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I just have a whole mix of emotions. And then on top of that, there was also an element of imposter syndrome. Because, mm. um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to graduate valedictorian high school, but, and then, and then get into Cornell. But then, you know, a lot of my teachers, they would say, like Shaq, like Cornell is, is a very difficult school. They would say things like, um, "Yo, you know, you were you were a big fish in a in a small pond." Mm-hmm. That was a very common saying, and that's just to say that okay, like you were you were smart in this school, but like when you go to Cornell, you're a small mm-hmm. fish in a big pond, mm-hmm. right? There's there's going to be people ten times as smart as you, ten times hardworking, and and and, and all kinds of sorts. So I there's a 
really big mix of emotions. Mm-hmm. But then coming in, I like PSP was super helpful doing that pre-freshman summer program with, you know, just being able to build relationships with people, come into the regular semester with friends already. Uh, and then like already knowing how to kind of navigate the the campus uh, and just small things like knowing which dining halls are the best and, and which locations are the best study spots. So that was a really good reassurance as to why, you know, I'm, I'm here at this place, at this institution and why I deserve to be here. But throughout that whole process, <laughs> I was pre-med. Completely so, different route. Yeah, it was kind of very different from like my actual passions and things that I actually enjoyed and did for mm-hmm. fun, mm-hmm. like all of the, the hustles and, and stuff. And so coming in, I, I got into Cornell as a biology major, wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Um, you know, I, I thought it was pretty cool. I said, why not? <laughs> you know, watched a couple of Grey's Anatomy episodes and <laughs> this is what I wanted to do. Um, but uh, that wasn't the case. I did well in my pre-med coursework, but I just wasn't as passionate about it. Like with business and finance, I'm I'm thinking about those things a lot. Like mm. I, I like to think about the markets just for fun. Like nobody has to push me to do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas with pre-med, like I enjoyed science and math broadly, but like how can I like I I, I, I just enjoy things that I can put into practice immediately, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? With biology, you know, I, I couldn't really see myself putting that into practice immediately. So it was very difficult. Whereas like finance, uh, learning about the markets, I, I'm immediately able to yeah. invest and, and kind of build on that knowledge, 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Every, every weekday. Um, you know, I, I think that's... Um... That's the beauty of Dyson. And I, I think I've been saying this to you a lot too. Like, it's it's really awesome that in the business major and in the, in the business school at Cornell, the things you learn, like, they're so practical. They're so practical in the fact, like you said, you literally wait. You, I see you do this. Um, you help me do this. You advise me in this. Um, 9.30 every morning, even before class, it's, that's, that's what you do. And so <laughs> it's and it's interesting because because the curriculum is built in that way, uh, but we could dive into into the the Dyson and, and the rest of the Cornell community later. Um, did I? I think I cut you off on something earlier. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I guess the toughest part about making that like having that realization that I didn't want to do pre med was actually facing the harsh reality that I would have to tell my parents like, yeah, uh, I don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> Like your son is not going to be the first doctor in the family, you know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, like, made the switch without fully telling them. <laughs> when when did that happen? Is that fresh, Was that freshman year? After my first semester of freshman year. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so, a good time. Yeah, really good time. I, I made the decision. It was quick. Yeah. And then I had the rest of my college experience to just do what I wanted to do. You know, this kind of um, makes me think about me before I even got to college. Um, uh, my parents are extremely supportive of what I do and everything. But as you said, uh, I think this tends to be a thing within African parents in general. 
Uh, I don't know, Mohammed. You kind of just you, you didn't have a similar experience, but I, I think you can kind of agree to it too. But before I even got to Cornell, my thing was my dad wanted to be wanted me to be a doctor, and so you know, like Cornell wasn't even in the picture uh, to begin with. It was just like what schools are out there that have accelerated pre med um, opportunities for you to pursue. Mm-hmm. And so Cornell came out of nowhere for me. So I, I could definitely resonate with you making that uh, transition without um, having that that influence or having that um, that thing to think about. Um, but like I was saying, it's a it's a pretty perfect opportunity and perfect timing that you did that. How did you do that? How, what what was what was the steps you took to get yeah, the, the steps? So you know, first was just identifying what I was actually passionate about. And, you know, that was straightforward for me because I was able to look back at my past experiences and see they're they're all very entrepreneurial, all business related. You know, that's what I like doing for fun. Um, And so, you know, that was my passion. So Mm -hmm. one, identifying the passion. Two, like taking the actual steps to make the transfer. So. I, I started looking into the Dyson transfer process and mm. and figuring out the best classes to take in order to prepare for that. Um, and then as well as speaking to an advisor in Dyson to, um, you know, just learn more about the process in general. And then three was also just joining clubs, joining business finance related clubs. Uh, you know, that was super helpful because these clubs provide so much so much practical experience as well as the networks like you know the networks that can provide you with the mentors and people who can actually just guide you along this path mm-hmm. and so um I, i'd say those were three main steps and i guess a fourth was just like confronting my parents and, and telling them i didn't want to do this Big step. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that right there Now you 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 mentioned um, you know talking to advisors and uh, joining clubs and how that's important that's important, um, and I feel like not a lot of people take advantage of those. Um, like you use that for example when to uh, when you transitioned to um, Dyson, but how have you used that even after um, joining Dyson? Like, do you talk to your advisors and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, so advisors, not so much, just because. I talk to a lot of my student mentors more. Mm-hmm. I feel like they can they can relate more to my direct experience a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but advisors definitely like if I have a like a college specific question, like I'll, I'll happily set up a meeting with them. Um, and then as far as clubs and organizations, like yeah, even after joining Dyson, like I still join the finance some finance orgs to gain more experience, meet new people. And just build those relationships. Like I, I feel like that's a really important element of college in general. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is a beautiful transition to to clubs um, on campus. One of which is Black Gen Capital. Um, and it's interesting because even this wasn't so far after your transition that you kind of went on on to to start this organization. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. What, what did that process look like? Um, and what went into making Black Gen what it is today? Yeah, absolutely. So, and making that transition, you know, I joined some clubs 
some business clubs at Cornell. And, you know, it became very apparent that there was a severe lack of diversity issue. You know, this was, it, it's getting a lot better now that we're in 2021, but, you know, when I, when I was a freshman, like all of these clubs, a lot of them didn't have any people of color, which is really shocking. Um, yeah. And so even as a freshman, not, you know, not really having um, like business acumen, like in terms of like, like the books, mm-hmm. you know, I, it was immediately like super intimidating to try to join those orgs, mm. um, you know, fa- facing the fears of just imposter syndrome, knowing if you're good enough, knowing if you're going to fit. And then even if you do fit, like knowing that you'll be accepted and, and you know, be able to produce good work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after joining some of those orgs, I figured like, and, and then also like throughout that process from like freshman spring to sophomore year, I was just building up a lot of finance experience, um, doing a lot of self-taught stuff as well as um, doing internships and, and programs at some of the banks. Uh, I was lucky enough to do a, a freshman enhancement internship at Morgan Stanley which provided a, a nice foundation for the finance fundamentals. And then also just like reading textbooks and guides and stuff. And then mm-hmm. my sophomore fall, uh, you know, I, Aramis came into the picture and we both just sat down one day and, and figured and just talked about these issues. Like there's really no black or Latinx people in these orgs, which was so sad. He was, Aaron was in, in another top finance org. He, he was the only person of color in that org. I was in a, another organization, only person of color there. Mm-hmm. And this was just shocking to us because <laughs> like we knew so many talented, like smart black and Latinx students who wanted to go into this, this field of finance, who wanted the same resources, the networks, the yeah. knowledge that the, the Cornell Finance Clubs provide. Mm-hmm. So there was an immediate gap there that we, we needed to fill somehow. Mm-hmm. So we came together and built uh, Black Gen Capital as a, a way to bridge the access gap between talented Black and, and Latinx students who want to go off into, the, who want to learn about financial literacy uh, and then ultimately go off into the financial services uh, industry as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so, um, you know, when you started um, Black Gen, uh, you saw this big need uh, for financial literacy education for um, underrepresented students. Um, so, like, it's a big um, it's a big gap that you're trying to fill, and you're trying to create a whole new organization. What are the challenges that came with that? And, you know, how did you um, deal with that? And can you tell us about the whole process of, starting a whole new organization on campus? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I'd say challenges, definitely just having this vision. Um, you know, I was just talking about this the other day with somebody, but having this vision that is, is kind of, is, is different, right? We were the first underrepresented minority-owned investment fund at Cornell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's over 200-year history. 
right? And so yeah. kind of setting out that vision and then others, other people kind of not fully understanding that the vision will soon become a reality. So that was definitely a challenge. Uh, I'd say another challenge was just, um, you know, just making sure that our brand was was intact and, and it was something that was, was it was not just, oh, this is another club on campus, another group of students trying to get together, but mm-hmm. this was like, we, were, we wanted to make monumental change for the Black and Latinx community. And so we we wanted to exemplify that in our brand and in our marketing initiatives to make sure that, you know, the community and the people who saw us, they knew that we were serious and ha- deeply passionate mm-hmm. about solving this issue. That was definitely another challenge. Um, logistical challenges, just um, like the whole club formation process, like finding an advisor to sign off on, on things. Um, you know, setting up like the gift funds and knowing how to use that, as well as setting up the nonprofit entity as well. Got you. So for the people listening out there that are interested in tackling a problem that they see plaguing the campus and it being a way for, um, and the best way being um, creating an organization, what are some of the lessons that you've learned in this process that you definitely um, advise students to kind of take into account? Yeah, biggest lesson definitely is um, like your team is the most important aspect, hands down. Um, you know, you can have the best ideas in the world, but at the end of the day, it's all about the execution. Mm-hmm. And your execution as an organization heavily relies on the leadership team behind it. Mm-hmm. So when building out this team, when building out blockchain capital, we knew that our team couldn't just consist of our, our close friends and buddies and and bros and, and sisters and, and and stuff. We we knew that the people who need who are going to be on this team had to be just deeply passionate about the issue, mm-hmm. you know, even more passionate than us as the founders. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to should exemplify that they can lead and, and take that initiative and and then also just be willing to be fully committed and you know like allocate the necessary time to make sure that we can fully nurture this we would refer to black gen as our baby nope. that they can fully nurture this baby that's, that's growing you know, so that's definitely by hands down most important lesson when building an organization. It it depends on the team. Another lesson that I've learned through Black Gen Capital is that like this kind of fall this is uh, a good follow-up from the previous lesson is that once you have that good team and you you have the potential and the capacity to execute now. Like you're only limited by your own creativity. Mm-hmm. You're only limited by your own creativity. You all, all you need to do now is come up with the best ideas and make sure the best ideas win. You know, um, Ray Dalio talks a lot about like radical transparency and, and radical truth. And I really resonate with those, um, you know, like those values when, those principles when building our organizations 
because that ultimately allows the best ideas to win because it, it's not just a it's not like a popularity contest with, within your executive board. It's more so a meritocracy in that the best ideas, you know, are gonna win. And it's not just, oh, like I'm the president, I'm the I'm the co-founder, I have this idea, we should do it like this. No. Mm-hmm. I, I, from from the first day in our meetings, I we we let the e-board know like we're we're not like your bosses. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how it is. We're not your boss. We're more so just like helping to facilitate and, and make sure that we can nurture these ideas mm-hmm. to the ground. I do. Uh, for those that don't know, who is Ray Dalio um, and, and what are principles? Yeah, yeah. So Ray Dalio is um, founder and CEO of, of Bridgewater Associates. So one of is the largest hedge fund uh, in the world. I think over like 170 billion assets, something like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, incredibly smart and, and talented, um, you know, investor. And, and so he ultimately put packaged together all of the principles and lessons that he's learned while building Bridgewater Associates. Um, and so he packaged it together and called it Principles, one of my favorite books mm. today. And I, I I actually read that thoroughly before building out, before co-founding Black Gen, mm-hmm. because I knew it would have just so many gems that, that would play out um, in, incredibly well while making sure that we can succeed and, and grow. Yeah, um, de- definitely. Abe, Abe is always telling me to... Um read that book as well so it uh, seems to be a common uh theme um, right um you you mentioned that you know black jet you guys saw it as 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 like your baby and it needs like time you need to uh, you need to like put in a lot of um attention focus on it right but you're a college student bro uh what about school <laughs> like how do you how do you balance that and like make sure that this is where it's at right now um like where do you get the time for that um yeah yeah i don't think it's about having time it's more so about making the time Mm -hmm. you know that's really my big perspective on time management like if if an emergency comes up in your life right now and you know you're fully you're busy for the day like your your schedule is packed quote unquote yeah right an emergency comes up what are you going to do you're going to take care of that emergency and allocate the time for it right mm. so before looking at that looking at your schedule you didn't have time for anything else but you just made the time to to take care of that emergency and so and in similar vein uh, while building out Blackchain, I made sure to make the time for it. Although I was a full-time student, I had other commitments and, and priorities, I made sure to make the time for it and, and also just vet for a leadership team that could also make the time for it. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, um, it's interesting because I've seen this firsthand working with you, uh, making time. Uh, and that's something we both kind of adopted and, and really try to do. but um let's get a little technical about how you did that um uh literally by planning by the hour um 
talk a little bit about you know how that's shaped the way that you approach making time for things in the future mm-hmm. yeah for sure so i i live by google calendar um you know if it's not on my google calendar then like i'll easily just forget about it um and so i i would literally just make time on my google map out like time on my calendar whenever i'm free you know sit down with erm and i we plan stuff um you know making sure that meetings are, are transparent for the entire leadership team and having a consistent schedule i found that really really key in terms of balance and time management even beyond blockchain capital while managing my time with i i used to have a bad problem with like not knowing or like forgetting to eat or like forgetting to like go to the gym things like that but as soon as you set a physical time mm-hmm. every single day that you do those things it becomes muscle memory and and you have no way around it and then it forces you to also make sure that you don't schedule other things during those times that you need to take care of to mm-hmm. take care of those necessities and so lit, like literally mapping out the time to do certain things like working on blockchain or or eating at a certain time or going to the gym yeah um kind of reminds me of me and Abe were talking about um budgeting um these last two weeks and um we came up we were talking about this concept of giving every money a job every money in your bank account giving it a job even if it's saving that's you're giving it a job its job is it's saving right so we can apply the same concept here with time you got to yeah. give every time a purpose a job and that way you can kind of maneuver it better yeah um, that's actually a beautiful transition i don't know we were initially talking thinking about talking about budgeting but i'm i'm actually curious because a lot of people listening probably are trying to get some finance tips from you and trying to get some investing tips from you or money management tips from you to some degree right um what is your perspective on money and and budgeting and money management so my perspective on money and budgeting i i'm big into like investing so a large amount of my assets are invest are in my brokerage accounts like being ready to invest um and then i i also keep a, a the rest like a good amount of the the remaining amount of assets in my savings account uh and then in my checkings account i just have enough to cover like you know the month nothing too um nothing too crazy mm-hmm. as far as um as far as tips like for for those who kind of want to get into investing i guess the first step if you want to get into investing is you 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 have to figure out like you have to one be deeply committed to it cuz this is your actual money that you're investing you know when you lose money it's going to hurt <laughs> and for people who aren't fully committed to learning about investing you'll just give up right there after you lose some money but first figure out your commitment two allocate time to actually conducting self education i highly recommend um you know youtube youtube is a really good resource you, you search up any question mm-hmm. there are going to be investing tips and, and guides on there 
Um, and then also Investpedia. So that really breaks down. Oh. It, it's kind of like uh, another, it's just an encyclopedia that, uh, that has answers to all of your investing questions, whether it be like, what are different strategies I can implement? What, what does this mean? What does that mean? How do I do this? Um, you know, what are market conditions? And then, you know, third step after getting sort of the, the technical fundamentals as far as how to invest, then it's figuring out, okay, what to invest in. Mm-hmm. That, that part really depends on just knowledge of the financial markets, staying up to date with the current news, what's going on, and how do those news events impact certain industries you know certain you know sectors uh, and, and then ultimately going down to certain companies mm-hmm. and so um really staying on top of the news so how wall street journal um you know i i really like uh morning brew it, it summarizes all of the, the the news events in in the morning puts in a very digestible format mm-hmm. um robin hood snacks is also really good I also like The Economist that is a little bit more um, like macro, macro facing stuff. Uh, and then, and then also uh, you can't forget, like there's a lot of good Twitter accounts that have nice information that they, they can tweet out. So you, you can just, you know, turn on notifications for those accounts and, and kind of follow what they're doing. I hope I hope people listening are uh, taking notes. I I thought I forgot this was recorded, and I kept thinking to myself, "Oh my god, I need to take notes because <laughs> this is like these are good tips, like the you know the websites and the resources that you mentioned as well. Like um, definitely appreciate you for uh, dropping those. But um, I want to talk about um, you know fellow, um, you know both you and Ebenezer, uh, you guys co-founded fellow. And it's, that's, that's like a whole different experience. It's entrepreneurship. It's just the start, startup world. And I feel like there's a lot we can learn from that. Um, so you guys can, you know, go ahead, talk about fellow, um, and you can go on from there. Yeah, we can. Chuck, I, I, I always give you this. Uh, you want to talk about the story? <laughs> the genesis? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So fellow... One day, Ebenezer and I just came together for dinner, um, you know, just chopping up, chopping it up uh, on the usual. And then we we kind of get into the things that we're working on. So I started talking about Black Gen, blah, 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 and how I have so many ideas for that. Ebenezer's talking about breaking it down. Uh, and, and then we realized that with both of these things that we're super passionate about and want to see grow and, and succeed, we have all these ideas, but it's so hard to execute on them just because of the missing talent that we have. And so we figured like, why is that like a, a big problem for us? Like, is it, we were curious to see if it was a similar, a similar problem for a lot of other students at Cornell and, and beyond. And so we automatically just jumped on it, started Chat, chatting with students, seeing if this was a problem that they had, and and figuring out if if this is something that we could potentially solve. Mm-hmm. And so, 
throughout the interviews, we did learn that, you know, students had, you know, had trouble like pursuing their passions and working on side projects. And, you know, one of the reasons that, that it was very common was just fun, being able to find people. Mm. And so after that, I, I, I guess I can pass it to Abe to kind of, to kind of talk about what, we, what were the next steps. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, when we first even started with this, Shaq and I, you know, we, we kind of have had our own experiences starting things, but nothing like a business, nothing like a, a startup that's trying to tackle this big problem that people are out there having. And, you know, it's not just making something, it's making something that is sustainable, uh, which means it has a money aspect to it, which means you're actually impacting people. And so um, just, just, to, just as a precursor to everything that I'm going to say, it, this is, this, these are all lessons that we learned throughout this process. And I think it's because we jumped into this and, and we kind of took a leap of faith um, and we're curious to learn um, that we have, have developed a good amount of experience in those arenas and, and kind of developed these experiences. Um, when we first started, um, and, and when we when we went through this whole process, we made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes. Um, and that was the beauty of it, I think, that we, we learned a lot, um, learned a lot in terms also of lessons and gems. Exactly. Exactly. Not even in terms of business and entrepreneurship, but in terms of ourselves, in terms of um, doing things outside of class, managing that, working with people um, and honestly, Hiring students um, and everything along that, but to make it short and sweet, um, this was around this time last year, um, and around the time that Black Joe was also getting started, um, and and so after kind of identifying this problem, we went ahead and we we uh, put together this MVP, um, not technical MVP. So there was no code aspect to it. It was just using what existed out there, resources that we can easily put together those that was a slack Airtable, and um our website uh, Airtable and a website wix um and we put that together in a matter of like a week threw that out there and in almost a week and a half we had over 670 students sign up from over 50 plus universities um and that was like a big like yo this is actually interesting maybe we should pursue this a little bit more dive into and then we went ahead and kind of found people to work with, which in itself was ironic because fellow <laughs> yeah. help people find it, find people to work with. And we ended up using fellow to do that too, actually. So the people that we did find were part of our community. Um, and Shaq, you want to talk a little bit about the experience kind of working with people, some of the lessons that we learned in that, uh, in that process? Yeah. Yeah. We had a crazy summer. Um, <clears throat> One of the biggest, I guess, lessons just throughout the whole fellow experience was just learning how to build a team, learning how to lead a team and, and make sure that we can actually execute as a team. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we made some, we fell into some pitfalls at the beginning, like, you know, un unnecessarily hiring and like unnecessarily, you know, accepting interns. Mm. Um, and so unfortunately we had to like cut some of those interns very short after, after we realized that that's even the hard, it's the hard thing to do. 
Yeah, it was it was tough, very tough. Cause like, you know, we were at first we were super excited about having interns on the yeah. team. They were excited to work with us. They were deeply passionate. But then Abe and I came to like several realizations. Like, okay, like we don't actually need an intern for this position. Mm. Um, we don't need a person for that. Um, and so we we had some really tough conversations. Um, but however, the interns that we did, you know, keep throughout the semester, we were able to, throughout the summer, we were able to just learn along the journey as to how to, how to really manage a team, how to lead a team. We, we learned, I, I truly learned the importance of just leadership and it's, mm. it's not really about being someone's boss. That's that's not what it what leadership is at all. In fact, it's probably the complete opposite. It's working for your teammates, mm. being to support them and and empower them, encourage them to mm-hmm. get things done and 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 help them out throughout that process. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a really big revelation that I personally had, and and I I I see that you know shaping out you know, all of my future, like, endeavors. Definitely. I think um, another thing that we really um, learned throughout that process is um, is consistency. Um, and I think you kind of mentioned that earlier. But uh, consistency in meetings, consistency and checking in with people, consistency and, and yeah. And it's like, um, it it might seem like, you know, you could let, you can let people go off and do whatever they want type of thing, but it's extremely important to, to be there um, along the way. And mm-hmm. that's what Shuck was just talking about leadership, like literally being there along the way, but also giving them room to breathe and, and things like that. When I say being there is like being available and making yeah. sure you're creating time for them. And so throughout the summer, we spent a good amount of time just with the team Um not even strategizing, not even thinking about the future, not even doing customer discovery, but literally checking in with the team. We had meetings every day with all the teams. We had um, all these um, things that were, in a way, really helping us build a team. And in another way, pulling us from the exact job that we were supposed yeah. to be doing. Um, yeah. And so that's where um, we kind of lost clarity in the, in the way that we were going about executing um, and Chuck and I had this uh, really good perspective and culture where we wanted to um, make sure that everyone felt um, at home as if this was a family, which it was. And we, we did a really great job of, of doing that. Mm-hmm. But in that process, we kind of um, made a good amount of mistakes where um, the amount of people um, making decisions, kind of having input. Um, made our vision a lot less clear yeah and so uh, i think that was a, that was a very big lesson that we kind of took away from that um, Wait, so that means like um a lot of people were involved in making those decisions uh, was that the mistake like what was the mistake yeah so kind of like you know we we kind of opened the the ideating process to every team you yeah. know even if they are not as necessarily directly involved with you know that 
like element. Mm. And so that's where a lot of ideas were getting thrown around, is getting very jumbled. And, and that's what Abe is talking about when we, when we lost a little bit of clarity. Um, you know, it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we quickly realized, like, in terms of the decision-making process, we we pretty much just needed to kind of slim down just a little bit um, and, and really focus on not ideating too much, making sure that we can also execute mm-hmm. on, on the ideas that came up. It's really interesting because it, as, as, as leaders, it, it kind of requires you to like you guys mentioned earlier, um, Stuplo get really involved with everyone, but at the same time, kind of detach and also uh, to make decisions. So it's like, you have to do a lot of things. Like it's not a simple straight road, it's like left, right, up, down. And that's kind of what I'm getting from um, this. Yeah, yeah, kind of going off of that, it's, it's all about kind of being able to have a narrow scope in terms of, being able to look at the details, but then also taking a step back to widen that scope and look at the grand vision. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it got to a point where Abe and I were more so very narrow in terms of the details and kind of working with the team. Mm-hmm. But then we realized that we quickly needed to widen our scope a little bit and look at the grand picture. So mm-hmm. we would actually have these like weekly meetings every single week just literally sit down and just break down what happened last week, break down where are we heading in terms of direction and future and, and how are we going to get there? What are things that we need to change? What are things that us as, you know, leaders of this org need to change? And what are also, what are things that our teammates and, and organizational things that we need to change as well? Definitely. And um, uh, I know we're kind of running down on time, but um, uh, to kind of put the cherry on top of this uh, to some degree, um, what we found extremely useful was emotionally detached feedback throughout this process. Um, like Shaq said, when you're building things from the bottom, it's your little baby. You're nurturing it. You're, you're um, putting a lot of barriers around and, and kind of trying to navigate this world of, of building a company, which in itself is extremely intricate um, and requires a lot of emotional attachment. And that's where the passion comes. That's where the energy comes from. And so in that process, you can be um, blocked off from ideas, blocked off from different perspectives. And so we actively sought um, people with experience in these fields, not just anyone, not just uh, you know Jack from the street or anything like that, but people with experience in this area that um, that have gone through these processes that yeah. can give us insight. Um, and those people included some of our mentors um, and close advisors like Rami, Jaron. Um, and then later on when school came about, we went ahead and applied to eLab, which is the student accelerator program here at Cornell. So for all you entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs that are trying to get into entrepreneurship, into the world of business and starting a company from bottom, you should definitely look into the eLab Accelerator program. And not even just that, if you're interested in learning about this process, definitely check out the eLab classes um, for, for Assertus, NBA 6230, NBA 6330. They literally walk you through the steps of where an idea starts and how you build 
a team around it and how you execute. That's where we currently are. Um, and it's been an interesting journey so far. Um, but I think it will be a nice time to transition onto the future. Um, Shaq, you have a beautiful uh, way of looking at uh, goals um, and it's, it's visions. Um, so talk a little bit about your visions for the future and some of the things you're currently doing to achieve those. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of, I like to look at visions just because, um, you know, I, I feel like in a sense, like if I'm looking out five years from now, it's very difficult to set actual goals because the future is so uncertain. Mm-hmm. However, broader visions that can serve as guidance and 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 like help build a path it is a lot more um just like practical for me personally and so one of my visions i guess is to just be at like i guess i'll talk about you know five years from now like one of my visions hopefully you know is to to be working at like a hedge fund uh, being able to pitch investment ideas to teams and and ultimately just really wake up every single day, go to work and just enjoy what I do. Um, and I think as of now, that is the hedge fund route because I, I wake up every day to this day, 7.30, 7 a.m., um, you know, go to the gym, come back, start doing research uh, on different stocks and stuff like that, mm-hmm. getting ready for the trading day. I already do that for fun. And so if I could do that as a career, that'd be so just fulfilled, very satisfying and, and I, I really enjoy it. My second vision is just to continue having those, you know, really having a strong inner circle. Um, you know, continuing those relationships that I've built from from Cornell and and just having genuine relationships with those people in my inner circle who can, you know, be there for me, motivate me. You know, I, I also, you know, return those in, 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 in exchange. And then I, my third is just family. Family is really important to me. Um, you know, I, I want to be at a place where, you know, I can just like, wake up every day and know that my whole family is good my yeah. whole family's okay you know nothing's really bothering them and we're just at you know a, a good place in terms of our relationship with each other and my my last thing i, I know i said three but i'm gonna cheat a little bit my fourth vision is like i i feel like at, at in 2025 the world's gonna be so different but I know that one thing will remain consistent. I know that at 25, I'll be at a point where, you know, I can look back and say, okay, like I've done these things, which is great, but there's, there's so much more that I can do. And, and I mean that in terms of not just in terms of career advancement and like professional goals, but more so in terms of giving back to my community and and helping build those back up. Mm -hmm. Um, communities, not just in South Bronx, Harlem, uh, but also in West Africa, Mali, uh, just to really like make some progress towards sparking generational change and, and providing access to resources and the tools that 
you know, we just have been deprived of for so long. Um, so I guess those are my four visions. Uh, I'm really optimistic. Any of you already know this about me, but I'm just a super optimistic person. I like just thinking about the future and really looking at the upsides, but also just not forgetting the downsides too, but just really enjoying the the, the fruits and, and what life has to offer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like I like the this idea of visions. You uh you you mentioned it last time we talked as well, and even after our conversation, I was I was I was telling Abe how that's a really smart way of looking at it because, like you said, you don't know the future, so you can't make like exact steps. You can't plan exact exact steps goals, but you know the gen the the destination. You know where you want to be at. You know the vision. That's the vision, and any way I go about it. Um, if I know that's what that's what I'm going is you know works and it's a really smart way of looking at it. Something I actually think is important with visions and goals to begin with is accountability too. Um, and I, I've I've seen myself with accountability kind of change in the way that I kind of find that. Um, and the reason that you know with kind of everything that I do, I have a co-founder, a co-partner, a co whatever is it's extremely. Um, extremely, extremely well in keeping you accountable. I can't tell you how many times, you know, working on fellow or working on things like that, you feel, you feel emotionally detached or you feel, you feel tired and you're trying to move on type of thing. And it's been extremely valuable kind of having someone there that's on that same vibe, kind of understands the vision, uh, the mission, the goals and how to get there. So um, like the long revisions, I think it's extremely important to have the accountability piece which I've personally gone through, uh, making sure I surround myself with people that are just as accountable or are visionaries. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, in terms of accountability, I kind of, I I like to look at the, the vision and like how I'm going to feel once I like am in that vision and, and, and have that, um, have a, kind of achieve those things. And then, you know, so that kind of serves as just motivation in itself, just because I know how hungry and, and determined I am to get to that vision. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of doing these things to get there. Mm-hmm. So the accountability really builds off of passion, mm-hmm. passion plus the vision that I, that I can ultimately just put together to, to get there. So um, we're at a nice place. What else you guys want to cover? We got like five more minutes. Like five minutes. When we were talking about fellow, um, uh, you guys talked about, you know, the, the first stage of customer discovery and stuff like that. Mm. And I wanted to actually emphasize on that point because I know how much work you guys put in. And it's not, it wasn't like a simple interview. Like how many people did you guys like talk to every week? And it's, it was like a very um, time-consuming, straining uh, process. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was kind—I was trying to slide that in, but everything else that was mentioned was kind of interesting too. Yeah. So uh, just left it. Yeah, we talked. We talked to over like eighty students in our initial round. I wouldn't say it was taxing. It was actually—it was fun. Like Abe and I, like we really enjoyed it because we were reaching out to just random people. Mm. Um, you know, who are two, three connections away or on LinkedIn 
mm. and just people who were doing interesting stuff. So we were having these interviews with them, but we were also just getting to know them and building relationships. We had quite quite a good amount of interesting problems, <laughs> to say but, the least. Uh, <laughs> I think honestly that was that was really enjoyable. Like I think a lot of customer discovery, a lot of people might might um and it is actually extremely taxing because you're taking a lot of time out of your day and you're asking the same questions type of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the twist that I think Shaq and I kind of put on that is just we were extremely laid back. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we asked the questions that we needed to along those lines. But the question we even asked was like, those were just trying to get to know the people to begin with. Cause that's important in customer discovery. Yeah. So, and something I took out of the whole thing is like, reach out to people, they'll respond. Like the people make the time out of the day to get back to you. People, people will hop on a 30 minute call out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like this initial uh, fear of even, you know, being social and finding someone that's out there and doing something incredibly Mm -hmm. um complex and you think like oh my god this person is doing this 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 you never know you know yeah. we, we, we've chatted with people that are uh doing some incredibly awesome things on their own at, at these all these different universities mm -hmm. um like almost like 50 plus universities and it's like just within that even if it wasn't for fellow like that's value right there like mm -hmm. it's value right there and like you wouldn't have the accountability or the, you know, the motivation to kind of do it. But I think customer discovery can be looked at in a way of, you know, no matter where this goes, we're building connections, we're networking with people, That's we're meeting interesting people that we'd never have the opportunity to. Yeah, that's a valuable experience for sure, for sure. So uh, let's give a little out outro. Um, so, <sighs> You wanna you wanna take this one more? Um well that's that's I think that's about it. We've you know we've, we've had a very, very great, interesting, deep conversation. Um Shaq, thank you for um you know joining us. This is definitely not gonna be um at least I hope the last time we have you here, you know, because we can't cover everything in, in an hour. Um we have to definitely have to talk more. Your um any other progress that you make um uh, with black gen uh, or with investing um we'll definitely talk about that more yeah honestly it's is fully my pleasure uh, i really enjoyed just being on this um and you know I'm, I'm really looking forward to just getting deeper and deeper on on the next episodes of breaking it down yes sir well Shaq, i think a lot of people are uh kind of thinking about uh ways of contacting you kind of getting in touch with you um you know what, what are some of the ways that people can reach out and possibly connect yeah feel free to reach out to me on linkedin of course Shek kamara um feel free to follow me on the gram Shek uh underscore me out uh feel free to you know uh, my my email is cc2344 at cornell.edu so feel free to reach out um you know down to chat and down to chat and and just you know help out however i can <laughs>